Tonight on Arena, we talk to Booker Prize winner Paul Lidge and we celebrate 55 years of Sunday miscellany. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Paul Lynch, if you have been living under a stone since uh, uh, last night, has won the Booker Prize for fiction with what judges called a soul-shattering novel about a woman's struggle to protect her family as Ireland collapses into totalitarianism and war. He had been the bookies' favoured, which is normally the kiss of death. But no, not in the case of Paul Lynch, who joins me on the phone this evening. Little did we know, Paul, when we spoke um, almost three weeks ago at the opening of the Dublin Book Festival, that we'd be having this phone call tonight. I certainly didn't see it, Sean. I didn't even expect it last night. I was uh, genuinely overwhelmed when, when it came. I had no expectation it was coming. Yeah, let's let's just have a listen to that moment when the announcement was made, and just try to put yourself back to well, not quite twenty four hours ago now, but twenty three hours ago. And now, I am delighted to announce that the winner of the Booker Prize, twenty twenty three, is "Prophet Song" by Paul Lynch. And and we saw you then, Paul. Uh, your head kind of went down into your hands. What was going through your mind at that moment in time? Oh, just disbelief. I mean, I'd had, I'd actually had <laughs> a little wobble about 15 <laughs> minutes beforehand, where I left, I left the room, and Ben Ockrey, Sir, Sir Ben Ockrey, came, found me, and came up to me, and spoke, spoke some wise words. And I went back into the room and was settled. The pressure in there is astonishing. So when it's announced and it's your book, it's it's very hard to describe it. Yeah. It's a once in a lifetime moment, uh, and it's happened to me. And so it, it 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 has it has the feeling of fairy dust and fairy tales. That's all I can say. But uh, Paul, don't be calling it a once in a lifetime moment. It could be the first of <laughs> first of these <laughs> lifetime I, I, moments. I, I did have. I think. I think. Maybe the BBC said he's won his first Booker Prize, and I just had a laugh and said, "Oh, come <laughs> off!" And... <laughs> you, you said you had a little, a little bit of a, a, a wobble. What? What? What happened? Was Was it just that it all got to you, or what? Just, just the sense of what it was, you know, and the pressure, and and you know, it, it's it's. There's a before and there's an after if you win the Booker Prize. That's mm. the reality of it. And, you know, you I think when you're a writer, you're acutely aware of it. Any writer who's been in that room has a story to tell about that room. Um, it's, a, it's a fabled experience. And um, But, uh, you know, and I, I, I did, I actually, you know, I felt I felt sorry for, for the other writers afterwards cause they, because it's, you know, I, mm. I've been in the room. <laughs> when you get the bad news, it's not, it's not pleasant. Um, you know, I spoke to Paul Murray afterwards, and he was he was very he was very good about it. And um, this is the way book awards go. And he 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 beat me to the Irish Book Award, Irish Novel of the Year, a few nights before that. Yeah. So we've been on a journey together, the pair of us. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd say so, and I'd say he was he was as delighted for you as many others were. You know, I'm sure there was disappointment, but as you said to us, I remember you you, you talking on that night of the the Dublin Book Award. Um, you were you were very wary about my going anywhere near the possibility of you you winning it. I think you were afraid I might have put a hex on it or something like that. But oh, you did I, say I, I did. you did say that night that being on the shortlist that's that's the winner. You're a winner already when you're on that list. Yeah, yeah, for certain. I mean, that was that. I think that you know, the, 
the, the Booker people had said that to us many times. You know, you're when when you get this far, that's that is it's really winning because your your book career will be different after that. And I I had made my peace with that. I thought this is this mm. is fine. You know, this is more than fine. I've got this far. It's an extraordinary thing for me to do. And um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I've been in a media tunnel since uh, 7:30 this morning. This is the 22nd interview that I've done. I'm in the back of a taxi at the moment on the way to Channel 4 News. That gives you an idea of, of what kind of day I've just had. Yeah, busy one, busy one. But, you know, the type of busy days that I'm sure as a writer you, you can only dream about. Have you any sense, I know you have probably have been doing nothing but interviews and probably answering <laughs> several uh, different versions of the same question since 20 past seven this morning. But have you begun to get any sense at all? I mean, you said how things had changed. I remember again in that interview with uh, at the Dublin Book Festival, you spoke about, you know, how the back catalogue was now being explored, maybe in a way that it, it hadn't been explored before. Uh, you know, reprints and new versions going out. This, of course, will will multiply all of that. Have you any sense of just how, you know, how quickly are things moving? I mean, there must be talk about translations, worldwide translations now. Oh, this yeah, point. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, of course. And But, it, I, I mean, I, I was told, uh, I was told earlier on that the book is just completely sold out in Ireland so that it cannot be got now, which is, uh, it just seems, it seems extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these, these are the sort of, <laughs> the wonderful things that come your way that and that, that one must be very grateful for. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all, it's all, it's just, uh, you know, I, I genuinely have an immense gratitude for, for what's, what's being bestowed upon me. Um, we, we spoke a little bit on the night uh, uh, when we spoke three weeks ago about the political aspect of the book. And I know you, you're, you're quite wary about that kind of political mantle being put onto the author's, onto an author's, and in this case, your, your author's head. What, what, if, what for you is the relationship between the fiction of the book? Or the, how does it rub up against you know, today's politics and the kind of the kind of totalitarian society that you're talking about in Dublin in the book that certainly exists in many places in the world. Yeah, you know, the reason I'm sort of, I do bristle a bit about, you know, am I a political novelist or is this a political novel? It's because, you know, politics is a lens. And if you're, I think if you're serious about fiction, you want to have a multiple of lenses. You want to have uh, as much complexity as you, as you can get. And so it's the, the lens of, of, of a political point of view is an insufficient lens for the kind of fiction that I want to write. And so the book does seem to have a, a very strong political dimension, but it also has many other dimensions that I'm interested in. And But it does, it does seem to have sort of quite by accident, it wasn't by design, I wasn't mm. setting out to write a zeitgeist novel, but it does seem to capture the feeling of the times, you know, the sense of unravelling perhaps, or the sense of modern chaos that we're experiencing. And by setting it in Ireland, I, you know, I'm not, the novel isn't saying distinctly this is this is going to come here. That's that's not what that's about. You know, anybody would think that that's a fine reading, but it, it's not necessarily what I'm trying to do here. You know, it's articulating truths that are actually recurring throughout time and the book may be set in the near future or it may be set in the counterfactual present. It doesn't say and it doesn't say for a reason. And so it allows the book to sort of find within it universals, um, um, you know, universal mm. ideas that are recurring throughout time. But you had spoken about this idea of, you know, the anxieties, the current, the anxieties of the current time certainly fed into to what you were writing here. Did the specifics of any particular country, of any particular set of events find their way, you know, making you, you looking at them through the lens of a, of a Dublin in that type of situation. Did that happen? 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, when I started writing the book, I thought I was thinking about Syria. I was thinking about how that happened and how, uh, and, and the sort of choices that people who, mm. you know, were, were, who lived through that experience and who took those boats, what, what, what sort of failure of imagination did I have as, as a citizen, as just an ordinary person in failing to truly understand why you might choose to take one of those boats with your children? That's something that, that, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very tough thing to truly understand. And so I was, I was addressing that just for myself in the book. It's all about questions, you know. I mm. think that the, the, the framing of the questions are more important than the answers. And, um, but I, as, as, as I began writing the book, it grew in complexity and it began to take on other layers. It began to take on other shadows from, from around the world. And it just grew into this sort of single book that could speak to multiple political realities at once. So it's, it's you know, the closer you can get to miss, the more freight your story can carry. And that, that was my intention. You, you spoke about your children, Amelie and Elliot, in your speech, in your acceptance speech last night. When you write a book like you've written in, in Prophet Song, is there any sense of, do you fear for the future that is in front of that particular generation, the generation of our children? You know, we're, we're within living memory of World War II, or at least within living memory of people who lived through it and the written record of it, you know, but their generation will come and it will mean nothing to them. And that's, I, I, you know, so perhaps, perhaps I'm, I'm writing this for my children and for, and, and, and for the next generation as a sort of reminder of what can come. You know, the book looks at, you know, it, it looks at a, at a reality that's, that's not, not normal to us now, but it's, it's asking it's asking questions about how that kind of reality, if, if it's going to happen, what are the outcomes from it? Yeah. And so maybe we ask ourselves the question, if, if, how do we get to that place in, in the first place, you know? Yeah, yeah, I suppose that, that that's a fair point. You must be getting close to Channel 4 now, but before, before the time... Tech... I'm, I'm outside and I'm being oh. stuck, so <laughs> yeah, I must go. One, well, just one final question then. Will there be, is, has there even been talk at this stage about a screen version? Because it's crying out to be put on the screen as well as in, as well as in the wonderful novel that you've given us. Any chat about that? I, I know nothing at this point. I, I know nothing. That's all I can say. I know nothing. Well, I hope when you know something, you'll come back and talk to us about it, Paul. I'm I'm very, very grateful to you for taking the time to to, to give us a little bit of extra time. Uh, it's a great this pleasure, evening. Sean. It's a great I, pleasure. I know that I speak for many people in the country when I say heartiest, heartiest congratulations. Enjoy every moment of your first Booker win, Paul. It, it, it's an honour to be an Irish writer and to bring this home. That's all I can say. That's great, Paul. Thanks so much for being with us. That's uh, Paul Lynch, winner of the Booker Prize uh, for his book, Prophet Song, and how great it is to catch him on his way into Channel 4 News. There we go. Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, is a new anthology from the much-loved Sunday morning show here on RT Radio 1. Producer Sarah Binsey chose 150 writers to represent the last five years on air. Everyone from Rosalind McDonough to Colm Tobin has had the essays and poems they wrote for broadcast get another outing here, this time in print. Delighted to have Sarah Binsey with me in studio this evening, along with two of the writers that feature in this new anthology, Tim Carey, Paula Shields, uh, also with 
with us uh, here. And since we're in the award-winning um, celebrations this evening, Sarah Binchy, um, it was on, was what night were we at? the it was the, Wednesday. Wednesday yeah. night, yeah, I've yeah. lost all track of time. Wednesday night last, we were at the um, uh, On Post Book Awards and delighted when one of yeah. the first prizes to be announced was Best Irish Published Book of the Year uh, at the On Post Book Awards, Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023. Yeah, we were so excited and happy and hadn't even really begun to prepare for that possibility. But what a boost for the book, for the contributors, for the programme and for New Island Books, Mm. who um, are a fantastic publisher, small independent publisher punching way above their weight. uh, Five years is what we got. Five years of of, uh, highlights, which is I don't even know how you went through (laughs) to get get it down to 150. But five, five years is what we have in this. Uh, particular anthology, but 55 years are on vogue, uh, uh, Sunday Miscellany on the go. How did it all start out? What's the history there? I think, I mean, to an extent, you know, um, a lot of it is lost in the archives mm. uh, at this stage and in the midst of time. But it, I think it started with commercial programmes. There was a, um, a commercial miscellany, um, maybe around 67, and it was very short, like 20 minutes or half an hour. But the powers that be in RGE or in Radio Erin, um, thought, no, we, we'll take that and we'll use it on a Sunday morning. And the idea was, you know, there are a lot of writers out there who could do with making a bit of, bit mm. of money, uh, the likes of Patrick Kavanagh and people like that. Um, and we'll, we'll put this nice little miscellany in there and sure, who's listening on a Sunday morning anyway? And um, I, it, it beca- but it became very popular very quickly. You know, if people have been into the Seamus Heaney exhibition, yeah. listen now again, he talks about Christmas miscellany in the very early 70s. It had become a thing so quickly. And we keep that format from the signature tune, Galliard Battaglia, um, to the um, words, music, words, music and credits at the end. We do not put, you know, we do not run music under the words. And no No presenter presenter there at all. I think, I think, (laughs) Ronnie Walsh, I think used to do some intros um, and things like that. But that format is pretty set in stone at this stage. No presenter. So the, the contributors are are presenters it's absolutely kind of kaleidoscopic because yeah, yeah, it, it, it is the case is, is it a hundred percent of the time or maybe 99.99 percent of the time that it is the writer who reads the piece absolutely and it would only be in the in kind of most unusual yeah, circumstances in extremis yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> well let us speak to the the two contributors that you have uh, that are in here with us this evening Tim Carey and Paula Shields Tim do you remember your first just n- never mind as a writer, but even as a listener, do you remember that first rub up against Sunday Miscellany? I remember I was living in Percy Price with the woman who is now my wife and waking up on Sunday mornings and listening to Sunday Miscellany. And I was kind of wanting to write. I was starting to write history books at that stage and hadn't been published, but I was very much kind of in the hmm... I must contribute to that sometime or I'd love to try and contribute. And I remember trying to write one or two pieces and then kind of gave up. Um, and then it was after my first book was published. And this is one of the rare occasions when I was asked to write a piece and um, was Clean and the Anloon asked me to do a piece on Croke Park for one of her September All-Ireland uh, things. And she rang me in work and I said, I've been waiting to write for this programme for the longest time. Is that, is that the story of going to Crow Park with your dad? Uh, with my daughter. Yeah. 
with my daughter. Your dad. And, yeah. Um, so I remember was, hearing that going out, and I've, I mean, it still says, oh, well, right. really sits out for me because the story is, without giving it away, is that you know you'd gone to the to Croke Park with your dad for years and years and years. Then sadly, he died. You went with your daughter. Is that not that? No, 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 totally different not one then. Me, then no, not me, not you. but another, okay. another, I suppose, someone going to, to try and find identity in a new mm. country and my daughter just taking it for granted. And it was actually turned out the programme was broadcast on our birthday and everything. And it was just, it was, it was lovely. And I started off doing just the history stuff because that's what I kind of yeah. did. And then... I kind of verged out into other stuff, and uh, and now I hardly do history stuff at all. Um, so <laughs> it I've has kind grown, of transformed. It has grown there, but clearly the, mm. the Croke Park one. I'm going to have to go off and research that <laughs> yeah, subsequently yeah, yeah. and find what it was. Sarah might be able to help me because it's a lovely story about um, a man who sees his daughter. Uh, he is with him at the thing, and suddenly he looks. He says, "Where's my dad?" And he sees the daughter's eyes. And he goes, there's my dad oh. in the daughter's eyes. You see, yeah. I can barely say it without. Yeah. It's a beautiful piece, yeah. beautiful, beautiful piece. Anyway, that's all by the by. <laughs> um, Paula Shields, when when did your first rub up against miscellany come? I don't remember specifically, but I do know that if you went into my mother's kitchen or my grandmother's it kitchen going back over the yeah. decades, it was you didn't speak to them. You certainly didn't phone them at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. They would not answer the phone or they would in very curt tones. <laughs> so I feel like it's been part of my life you know, when I've dipped in and out of Ireland in the background, surprising me, yeah. making upsetting me, you know, yeah. making me laugh, you yeah, know, making it, me it, wish I was a better it writer. It does all of usually. those things. And you should mention, Tim was saying there that he was commissioned. It, it, there are some commissions, Sarah, but yeah. generally it's an open book, it an is. open an open submission. It is. And I was surprised when I joined the programme that that was the case. But, you know, I see why it is. It's partly practical because, you know, um, if you were commissioning everything, you'd be in, in an awful lot mm. of conversations and that would be 52 weeks a year. That's, you know, not really feasible. So you can steer things with commissions, themed programmes, live programmes. Mm. But I think the huge amount of the energy and the intensity of the programme, if you like, um, and the dynamism comes from the fact that we have an open submission policy and we do pick out, mm. pick from that um, submissions pile. There's no fast track. You know, we, we we read everything that comes in and it may take a while, but we will hopefully get to your piece if we can. I mean, you know, obviously there's a huge amount we can't use. Yeah. But um, that it just we were just talking about it that like, you know, there was a piece on yesterday from a fantastic, um, a fantastic script by Margaret Kelly talking about her father, who was a stenographer in the Doyle. And he was a stenographer the day JFK came in to speak to the houses of the Arctis and the kids were at home and they turned on the telly. Oh, there's dad. <laughs> right. And they never really asked him, what was that like? What were you doing? What was that like? <laughs> and that came through in the piece. So she, it, It's an absolutely gorgeous piece. And we were saying, if she didn't know that th that was the kind of piece we did, I'm not quite sure what you would do with that story. Where would, where else would you go? So so we love those stories where it's, it's just you have a particular angle yeah. on a big historical big world event. event in some yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I suppose that that is the thing that it, it is a miscellany. You you can't quite pin down what makes a miscellany yeah. story because it is a miscellany. Let's let's have a sample. Um, if we'll, we'll go to you uh, first on this one, Tim. It, it, this is a memory of childhood. This is one of my first memories is uh, the smell of snow. And um, I'd always kind of you know, thought of it. I had conversations with people about it, arguments saying that I could smell snow and people saying you can't smell snow. And I said, I can smell snow. And I have proof that I could smell snow. Um, and then, so 
like snow has been important to me. And then when I started looking at it and, and for Sunday Miscellany, I was thinking, hmm. And then I was realising that, you know, the big snows that we had in the last sort of 10 or 15 yeah. years and the crack I had with my children. And then realising that actually, you know, as they grow older, that's not going to be happening possibly. And then it's sort of just tied up with my own childhood and their childhood and everything. Mm. So it was, it, and, and, and again, who, uh, apart from Sunday Miscellany, who would be interested in a piece like <laughs> that? You a great piece about the smell of snow. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to you on that one. What I say would be um, usually the response. Will you read a little section? Is this from the opening or where are it's we? It's just, just after the opening, but it's the, it's mm. the real scene. The, the nub of the matter. Yeah. My father and brother are in the backyard. My brother brings me over to what appears to my three-year-old eyes to be a mountain of snow. At the top, there's an entrance. My brother sits on the edge of the hole and puts his feet into it. Then he pushes himself off and disappears. A few seconds later, he appears at the bottom of the drift. Then I'm on the edge and, without fear, push myself off and slide on my back down a steep incline into a snow cave. The walls of snow crystals emit a blue light. The only sounds are of my suit's synthetic material scratching the ice floor and my breathing. The only smell is the smell of snow. The smell of snow. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee, is, Wisconsin. Is where you That's were, right, where yeah. you were growing up. So you were well used to snow and then you came to Ireland. By the way, um, there's all talk of Arctic air coming down. And I know, I get exciting. rather excited about yeah, these yeah. things. I'll have is a sniff. There a, is there a, I'm going to send you a whiff on the way in. Is I, there I, a, I haven't got a whiff on the way in, but <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll send you a message when I yeah, do. Yeah, because uh, I don't know if it's a full moon tonight, but it's quite big and uh, that's when you can really smell the snow. <laughs> I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm waiting for that text Grand. to ping <laughs> to tell me that there is snow on the way. Um, uh, Paula then, your your uh, essay, in the, so that was that's from Tim's uh, 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 piece in, in the Sunday Miscellany selection that we're talking about this evening and that's called The Smell of Snow. The Ballad of Fred and Ginger. I thought to myself, Paula Shields, I never knew she was a dancer. No, but I have two dancing border collies, John. <laughs> Anybody who knows me knows they're my obsession, a uh, brother and sister. And I wrote this piece during lockdown because, you know, anybody with dogs understands that mm. their lives are so much shorter than ours, but also we're on walks, daily walks, routine walks. And the 2K and the 5K really became all important in that time. And I kept thinking, I'm not a painter and I can't paint their portrait. Mm. And then I thought, I know what I can do. I can write something. And I'd read David Hockney had written Paint What You Love. So that's where this piece came. It's kind of about change and mortality as well. But really, it's about pet people and how obsessed we are. Right. Well, let's hear a little section. Again, are we at the top here? Are we close? Nearly to at the top. Yeah. Nearly at the so top. So we don't need much of a setup. We know no, that no. there are two dogs, Fred and Ginger. No. Fred and Ginger. He does move like a dancer, on tiptoes. He'd do well in the dressage round at the Dublin Horse Show. He has the black and white markings of evening dress, tuxedo style, a genteel film star of yore. If not Fred Astaire himself, then David Niven, perhaps. Ginger is black and white and tan, with a magnificent Elizabethan fur ruff around her neck. She moves like John Wayne, broad-shouldered, with more purpose than grace, especially in pursuit of a ball throwing her weight forward into heaving shoulders. If show-jumping at the RDS is Fred's arena, the Aviva Stadium would be Ginger's. She'd be good in a rugby scrum. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, Fred and Ginger. The Ballad of Fred and Ginger is the title of Paula Shields' piece in Sunny Miscellany, a selection to 2018 to 2023. Um, Paula Shields and uh, Tim Carey are with me, as is the editor of this uh, Miscellany selection, uh, Sarah Binchy. 
for people listening going, I actually have a great story now that is maybe it's not Fred and Ginger and maybe it's not the smell of snow. It could be something related or totally unrelated. Do you just send the stuff in? Or do you, you do. do you, are there guidelines as to There's how guidelines you go on the website? So 800 words approx. But, um, you know, almost invariably, the best thing you, you can do is just send it in. And people sometimes want to pitch. But mm. even then, all we can we, we decide on complete scripts. I, like and while we will probably sometimes do edits, I do not want 1500 words. You no. know, it's sort of like, you know, there are so many people who've who have solved all the problems before they send it in. That is something you need to do. You I, know? But do you, you mightn't do edits as yeah. in don't send us something that we then have to cut back because yeah. that's yeah. too difficult to do. Uh, yeah. But uh, in terms of radio, we all know that if you're 15 minutes and you want eight, that's practically impossible. If you're 15 and a half minutes and exactly. you want 15, you might manage it. Yeah. But do you give editorial guidance maybe on pieces that come in? Well, there are general guidelines which are about, like what um, Paula and Tim have been saying about, you know, writing the way you speak and not... You know, and, you know, I, I would have certain guidelines. I mean, if I if I had one thing, it would be get there faster, you know, just get mm. there. If I do not want preamble, you know, just get rid of all the um, verbiage, you know, read it out to yourself, read it out to a friend. Um, the minute their eyes start wandering, that's the bit yeah, you need to cut. You know, you know, the, the ability to mm. edit yourself is really important for writers. Of course, you know, so I do not want, well, I don't want outpourings. <laughs> You know, the, I just dashed this off. I couldn't I couldn't wait to send it to you. No, no, I, look at it again in the cold light of day. Having said that, like like we read everything that comes in, yeah. but um, something where the person has done the work beforehand, has thought about it, they that will just rise to the top. Although, Paula, you were telling me uh, before we came to our little story about did Sarah's possibly being a little modest on the editorial guidance, how a word or a sentence or a little nudge can help enormously with a piece? Absolutely. I sent in a piece. Uh, the only other piece I've managed to, to do for Sunday Miscellany is about a year I spent in France just after college at Queen's. And um, I sent it in with no expectations saying, it's fine. you know, if it doesn't make the grade, that's fine. And a few weeks later, it came back and there's one line and Sarah says she doesn't remember this, but I do. Um, there was one part of the me and it's that whole thing of, you know, going to a new country and not having a clue, mm. basically. So it's a comedy of errors. But she did say to me there was one point where she thought I might go deeper. I might push that a little. And that note, it was really good for two reasons. One, I thought she just spotted the only weak link I knew about and I thought I'd papered over. But it was also open enough and encouraging enough to send me back to the page thinking, oh, she thinks yeah. I have something. And that was such a great moment. Yeah, it was a lovely open, open direction. And you've you've had several pieces on, on the programme through the years, Tim. Yeah, I'm in my 40s now, I think. Really? Mm. Are you up at that number? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pro. I'm not. I'm consistent, not prolific. I think that's the way I look. And at are they time. always very personal? Are they, they always have a very personal side to them? Is that they, they, essential? The custom house, but even that, you were in the custom house because you cared so much about it. You wanted people to love the custom house. So there's something you you have to have some some skin in the game. So it's not just I'm going to tell you all I know about X, Y, and Z. So even the historical ones say I did one about Lillian Lynch, who's an artist who did uh, a place in Dunleary. But it wasn't really about her artwork. It was about her personal story. And just you kind of. Yeah. So it's it's that. And then most of them are now kind of personal. But I still do the odd historical one when. when but again, it's when kind the, of when, when the mood you feel it. that you have something 
that you really cared about or people weren't aware of? The Claire Garvey piece um, was one piece that, that uh, jumped out at me from the book. This is a piece called Happy Mother's Day. Yeah. Um, I think the piece I was remembering, by the way, was put out on Father's Day. I think that was that was what oh, it was. Yeah. I think it was before my time. <laughs> yeah, might, I think well it might have been, been in Cleaners yeah, might, GA might well book. Been. Yeah, could, um, possibly was, possibly was. But it, is, is the Claire Garvey piece, was it broadcast on Mother's Day or is that just for was, type? Yeah. It was. It, it landed in um, early this year and... I mean, sometimes these scripts arrive and sometimes this, it is the story of someone's mm. life, by which I don't mean the biography, yeah. but it is the story that is sort of pulsing within them. And I I don't, I, I think Claire had done all her thinking about it before she sat down and wrote it. Mm. And it, it's an extraordinary story about... Um, Going to a mother and baby home. Yeah, let's listen. It's, it's actually the opening section that we have yeah. here in this clip from Happy Mother's Day by Claire Garvey. The road into the Besborough mother and baby home stretched out long and grey before me when I arrived there in August 1985. Flanked on either side by fields where cows grazed, the old house had sweeping views over the Douglas estuary and had once been the home of a prominent Cork Quaker family. In 1922, it was bought by the Sisters of Sacred Heart Order of Nuns and became one of the first of the new state's institutional answers to the perceived problem of unmarried mothers. The nun who admitted me asked what name I wanted to have. It transpired that the girls in Besborough were assigned house names as we worked on a first name basis only, but I asked if I could keep mine as no one else had the same one. I soon discovered that everything was cloaked in secrecy. For the sake of the neighbours, the Dublin girls were doing a course in London and the Kerry girls were doing a course in Dublin. Nuns took letters and had them posted in England to add authenticity to this story. I was just six miles from home and I was confused. It's an extraordinary opening, isn't it? That's Happy Mother's Day from Claire Garvey and that is one of the pieces in Sunday Miscellaneous Selection that we're speaking about um, this evening from the, from the last five years of broadcast. And Claire goes from there. It took great courage to just unfold the story the way she does and open herself out to the entire nation on air in the fashion she does. Yeah, I think I think she was she might have been ready to, you yeah. know, the, the, um, and because what she's talking about is the secrecy that everyone colluded in. It was mm. quite late, you know, she was yeah. mid eighties when she was there, and she, I mean, the 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 core thing she's saying in the piece is, you know, she was a mother. They were all mothers. They all fantasized about keeping their babies, um, but then they had to go home and pretend. Oh yeah, I was doing a course in mm. England. Oh yeah. yeah, I was in Dublin. You know, and mm. and just how that you. That is so impossible to live with, you know, but it's it's there's a restraint and a sort of calm authority in the way she tells her story. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it 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 it, it really is. Yeah. It, it's all about economy. And and indeed, one of the other things that features in the book, Paula, is or not only in the book, but of course, in Sunday Miscellany itself is poetry. And that has a, has an economy, an inbuilt economy. It's one of the it's, it's often of a lovely moment in Miscellany when you just get the poem. No introduction, just the title and the piece itself. And of course, poets write for performance as well as print. But I love the way it, it blends in with the prose pieces and, you know, quite often might come at the end or, you know, and again, mm. you can go anywhere in poetry. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's one of the strengths of miscellany. Let's listen to Wolf Song, which is one you chose from Mary O'Malley. Wolf Song in memory of Ivan Boland. Sit still now. Take up your pen. In this space before noise begins, tigers are visiting the cities, 
and a white leopard sits on a lawn in suburbia. A wolf is walking along an empty beach in California. A poet sings his traces. Now she too is becoming history. Already the first slow movement of the strings is parting the silence. This is the point in the story when shadows thin as blades take over the April sky. You can see the wolf through them. Soon he too will be gone, forgotten. This long free walk by the sea, a detour. The sea will remember him. When he licked my hand at the hawthorn, his eyes sharpened the salt air. Wolf Song by Mary O'Malley there, one of the poems that features in Sunday Miscellany. And it does really, the poems just kind of stand alone in a wonderful way, Sarah. And, and when you're listening, they do the same thing. They they can, I think they can be a kind of palate cleanser or they can they can just, it's a, it's a different register so they can mm. kind of pull it tight. It, they, you can also use short music with the, with the poems so that it's not... It's not too um, uniform. Yeah. You know? um, there are live events as well and they're a vital part of the, the, live, the Sunday Miscellany Live great events. Yeah, yeah. Kleena started those about mm. I think 15 years ago and fantastic uh, thing to do. So the Christmas concert every year in the National Concert Hall it's coming up next week. The one in the concert hall is sold out but we are in Wexford Opera House and there are still tickets available. Oh, I will right. just tell oh, you. Why not? Why wouldn't you tell <laughs> To get a sense of what a live event feels like and sounds like. Let's listen to uh, Paul Howard's piece. This is called Tins, a little section. It was mostly tins, Heinz spaghetti spirals, yellow packed tomato soup, bachelor's processed peas, Tesco's own brand prunes in their own juice. (laughs) Del Monte mixed fruit cocktail. And then something so utterly revolting that I couldn't believe it was real at the time, just as I can scarcely believe it today. A full Irish breakfast in a tin. (laughs) The picture on the label suggested that somehow crammed into this TARDIS-like aluminium container were four tablespoons of baked beans, One thick slice of bacon that resembled the sole of my foot when I stayed too long in a hot bath. Half a grilled tomato, six button mushrooms, and swimming in the tomato sauce, a tiny skinless sausage looking pale and apologetic like a limp penis. I kind of half wanted a full Irish. Not now. <laughs> that, that was that was uh, Paul Howard and from one of the live Sunday Miscellany events, a piece called Tins. Just before we finish up, I want you to mention one other piece that you have chosen, um, Tim, um, and this was Bloody Friday by Olive Travers. This is a very strong piece yeah. set in Belfast. Set in Belfast on that uh, horrendous day in July of 1972 and you know it's the only problem I think you can go from Paul Howard talking about an Irish breakfast in a tin to this horrendous Horrendous day when she's going through Belfast and you know she's there's bombs going off they don't know which way to turn people are running in all directions and then at the end and this is what really kind of brings it home for me is that she wrote a letter. She didn't get a letter to her mother till two days afterwards. So her mother was frantic and her mother normally opens up letters, you know, very yeah. uh, carefully. And this one was just, she found it in her family kind of archive drawer. It was ripped open. 
Yeah. And sort of that she found out her daughter was safe. And I just thought, yeah. wow, you Says know, it all. that's Says amazing. It all. One brief question from a listener, Sean. How, who picks the music for Sunday Miscellany? That's the job of the week for you, I would guess, when the yeah, editing is done, Sarah. <laughs> I do, and take suggestions, but I ultimately, yeah, yep. decide. You, you decide. Uh-huh. Is it, she uh, does. Just yeah, I, know. Yeah. I know, okay, we've had I'm tussles. Hearing, I'm hearing the benign <laughs> dictatorship coming to the fore. <laughs> Listen, thanks so much to all three of you for coming in and congratulations on the anthology and on the win at the Irish Book Awards, Sarah. Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, is published by New Island. And finally tonight, an interview with the actor Arian Moyad, who many of you will know for his role as Stewie Hosseini in the TV show Succession. We met some months ago to discuss Arian's work on his latest film, You Hurt My Feelings, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. But because of Arian's activism on behalf of his union, SAG-AFTRA, we held the interview, but we can bring it to you tonight. You Hurt My Feelings stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus as a writer who finds out that her husband doesn't rate her professional skills. Ariane plays her brother-in-law, Mark, an insecure, perpetually out-of-work actor whose wife also hides her honest feelings about the true level of his talent. When I spoke with Ariane Moyad, we began by talking about the lies we all tell to keep our relationships going. And I asked him if he could describe the way the characters in this film communicate with each other. I think I just, that's a great question. I think we describe it in the way that we all kind of do it. You know, um, I am sure you have done many an interview in which you have seen some movie that you didn't love (laughs) and had to be like, I really, really loved it. Uh, um, And it's a thing to navigate. It's a real kind of serious thing to navigate. Um, I mean, it's so truthful and so honest that you, we navigate in a way Person to person, I think there are people in our lives that don't want to hear the truth, especially artists that are like, I'm in the middle of this thing. If it sucks, please don't tell me right now. Let me know later. And there are certain people that um, especially, you know, um, loved ones that want to be like, I want to know exactly everything. So it's it's a thing to navigate. What I love about what the movie You Hurt My Feelings does is it also investigates parental little lies. When, you're, when you tell your kid you're great at swimming, but when you're not great at swimming, are you trying to be helpful or are you, are you actually being detrimental? Uh, and I think that's a fascinating question to ask as well. Um, so who, who told you or did somebody tell you you were great at acting and did you believe them immediately or did you have to go off and find that out for yourself? I mean, to be honest, I'm I'm one of those people that's like, when they hear a compliment, it's like, yeah, I know, but I'm terrible in this, that moment I was terrible, and this moment was terrible, and I'm telling you this moment was bad. You don't understand. I just did a play on Broadway, and, and we did, you know, 130-some performances, and every night there's this moment that I was like, I never cracked it, I never cracked it, and I would tell other people, and they'd be like, are you crazy? It was fine. It's like, no, 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 it didn't work. It's okay. It mm. didn't work. Are you so ta- I'm kind of pretty hard on myself when... Are you talking about are you talking stuff. about a doll's house when you talk about the play on Broadway opposite Jessica yeah. Chastain? Yeah. Yeah, I, I wondered about that. You know, the the kind of the balance and it's always a question that an actor has to find, isn't it? The balance between theatre and film in this case and television, of course, in the case of succession and other projects that you've been in, in, in involved in. I, I noted that you when you were talking at one point about playing Stewie in uh, in succession, you talked about you actually found some aspects of making succession. I think it was the fact that it was being shot on film quite like theatre, where it's off you go, do it, don't mess it up. 
Exactly. That's a that's that's exactly right. On succession, because we shot these, we shot it all on film. You can't in the middle of a take be like, oh, can we stop for a second? I want to go back with that line. There's too many moving parts, especially on a show like that that has hundreds of extras in basically many, many, many scenes. Um, and so what happens is you just got to go with it. So if an extra accidentally bumps you the wrong way, and all of a sudden you have to incorporate that in the scene. Um, and so that does feel like live theater because there's so many times you're, you're you know a cell phone goes off and you're like oh i'm not paying attention to that or um oh someone trips accidentally or you, you there's so many things because that, that's what makes the theater so dangerous and that's what i feel what what viewers of succession are also kind of like lapping onto is that danger of like oh it feels so spontaneous that's it's like it's all going to combust in mm. a second and that's a little bit of that kind of like drive. I think the process of making it made succession so much of what it is. But it did, stri- it did strike me as you describe all of that. Let's go to the character of Mark and you hurt my feelings. I wonder how he'd be <laughs> he'd feel about being told he didn't have an extra take. I mean, this is an actor Ooh. who is so insecure. <laughs> it's 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 beyond belief. In fact, even when he's successful, he's afraid he's a failure. And when he's a failure, he thinks he's a bigger failure than he is. Do you know people like this, Ariane? Oh, God. yes. I think all actors and artists that I know that are that give that that want to give it their all, that want to like you know do the best that they can at mm. at being an artist, has these doubts constantly. I've had the great privilege of working with some amazing people. Um, and along the way, the one thing I've learned is the people that are really going for trying to be great at something, uh, uh, a painting, uh, some, so a, a choreography, a piece of choreography, that the insecurity and the doubt is always going to seep in through. Um, and, and really, it's a navigation of how you push past that. Because, you know, I teach uh, a lot to high school students. Um, and And one of the things that I come up with and I say is that it's not, it's not the, the, the issue is not you not getting the role like um, over and over and over again. You probably are not going to get the role. You know, it's the question of not the 30 auditions of no's that you just got. The question is what happens when the 31st no comes in <sighs> and you start being like, oh, I can't do this anymore. That I think is the real kind of like, um, struggle as an artist and and poor Mark I don't think has ever kind of dived into that answer and I think he's just kind of pushing it off and he even says it at one point in the show doesn't he, he kind of says in the movie he says um, he says I think I just wanted to become famous and and there's something that's really hilarious about that and there's something also really tragic about it because he's just spent 20 years of his life and the reality is mm. you, you just wanted people to love you that's yeah. basically the insecurity there where, where does Stewie fit into all of that? Because yeah. you, you get the, you look, let's face it, you get some of the absolutely best lines <laughs> and to say as, as Stewie in succession. But he's, he's a nasty enough bit of work, I can say, looking at him. Mm-hmm. I presume you can't say that. No, not at all. I mean, do I, as an outsider looking in, do I think he's nasty? Sure, I think they're all nasty. I think they should all, you know, you know, Loose, <laughs> you know. When people were like asking, like, "What do you think the end of Succession is going to be? Like? Are we going to be happy? You're going to be happy." And I would say this: I think, I think you're going to be satisfied. And the reason I would say that is because I don't want these people to win. 
I think these people should all lose. Mm. I think they shouldn't have this much power. I don't think they should be making decisions on, uh, on, on the, you know, our elections. I don't think they should be telling us what we should be doing with our money or whatnot, or, you know, so I think they're all kind of terrible. Um, but that being said, the thing about Stewie that I that I can latch onto is he's not going to lie to you. Um, hey, 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 how are we looking? Hey, dude, we have it. Hello? Yeah. Okay, we have it. But do we have you? We've got you, right? Well, I do have certain questions about riding the vegetable train, but, like, I am a selfish person, so... Uh-huh. Yeah. Do we... Invite the stew pot in. You know, get him inside. Non-exec chair. Activist, activist. Chair, guys. I like weird sex. I like bad drugs. I'm a very complicated individual. And he says it to, all the time to Kendall. He says, I love you. I think you're amazing. I think we've been old friends. But, dude, you know I have to follow the money. Mm. And, and honestly, I think that's what Logan is wanting from his kids is like, why are you bothering me with all of your personal drama? Yeah. Talk about the money, you know? And so... The son he never the had. Kind of fun yeah, the son, the he, son never, he never had. Yeah, yeah. I think you've, you've probably heard that one uh, uh, before. I, I'm wondering, I mean, when you describe, you're only talking about three characters with us. Mark, obviously, and You Hurt My Feelings, which is the film we're speaking about, the, the actor who kind of does okay by the end of it without giving too much away Stewie in succession and indeed um, the, the character of Tor- Torvald in, in, in a doll's house they're very different characters mm. how how important was it for you coming from your background your Iran- Iranian and Iranian background to mm-hmm. get yourself into those if I can call them centre of the canon type of perform- uh, characters you know that you weren't constantly cast because of the way you look as some kind of, you know, Iranian yeah. character and a label put on that character? What a great question, Sean. I mean, to be real with you, uh, I had been saying no to playing terrorist roles and like victims in film and TV for a very long time. And to be blunt, that's why I'm, I didn't work. The, the, you know, I didn't, you didn't see me in film and TV. I was only doing theater because in the theater in New York City, at least we get to kind of like sculpt Middle Eastern characters that are honest and truthful. Yeah. Um, so in a way, it was a, a bunch of years of not working because there was no, no one was writing complicated, nuanced Middle Eastern characters. Um, and, and how important is it to be, you know, when I sign on to Succession, I, I wasn't signing on to be on something that I knew was going to be a huge hit. I was signing on to it because I felt that this show in the heels of, 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 of Trump being elected and, 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 and authoritarians coming in and media circles, all the, 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 the three or four media outlets that are really controlling everything. I felt that succession was tackling this major problem. And to be real with you, I had no clue if people were going to love it or hate it. But I knew that it, that he was going, he that Jesse was doing something really special. And inside of that, I and Jesse talked about making sure that the character was Stewie Husseini, an Iranian last name. Many people don't even know that, but it doesn't really matter because that I think is just shows you that Iranians can at least just be a, alongside you without being you know, mm. we talking about Islam or, you know, all these like huge, big ideas. We're just people. 
Yeah. And a little bit of that is very important to me as well. To, uh, and I try to as much infuse that kind of Iranian uh, aspects to all these characters. And, 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 and it's hard to navigate. And the story has not ended. And there's a lot of work to be done. I still don't see Middle Easterners in, on television in ways that feel like very like diverse or interesting. Or I still feel like the pocket is... Mm. Even, you know, as recently as three months ago, I'm reading stories about fictitious Middle Eastern country in which the CIA and the MI6 have to go in. And it's like, first of all, they, they, they throw that, that fictitious Middle Eastern countries because they don't want to insult any Middle Easterners, but they still want us to be your fantasy bad guy. <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, That's actually what's happening. Yeah. And so, and navigating that is really tough. So the power of no can be really strong. You know, I'm going to tell you one funny antidote, just to give you an idea. There was a show that was a few, uh, maybe a couple years back that they wanted me for. And it, it was an Iranian character and he was a bad, like a terrible guy. And that doesn't even bother me. I was reading it and, you know, he was powerful. And, 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 but in the middle of the first episode, he yells at his mom and yells as he did a crazy thing for tea. Like he's like yelling at his mom, go get me tea. And I said, well, this is with this would this is impossible. This is a, <laughs> this would never happen in a writing culture. And the writer was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, this is, I don't say, I don't, I can't imagine this happening. <laughs> I can't imagine a son being like, yo, mom, mom, get me some tea. And he's like, well, it has to happen. There, mu there must be situations of this that it happens. I said, yeah, but why would I want to tell this 0.0001% of this story? We don't do that. Mm. It would be shocking. Honestly, he could be the most powerful man on earth. And he yells his mom for his tea. The, tea, the mom would walk up and slap him across the face. <laughs> because, don't talk to me that way. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, and, 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 and unless you have people at the top of the creative pyramid, unless you have artists and our producers are Middle Eastern or Black or women, um, at the top of that creative um, uh, 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 pyramid, what's going to happen is you're never going to infuse the truth and depth in these characters because at the at the creative point, you're not including those voices. It's no, you, and so of course you're going to have stories that are going to be false. I say this all the time. There's many episodic television shows that are happening everywhere that we go right you know and i don't want to name them we know them that run 10 years 15 years and they're just every year churning this and they have like five to ten writers in the room and they come up to you sean we're in the writer's room and they say sean you're doing the farming episode and i'm gonna do the new zealand episode <laughs> and so what well, let's say you don't know anything about farming you're gonna google farming <laughs> and in about 30 minutes you're gonna be like okay i'm gonna write something because you have to because it's due in 10 days there's no way you can tell that story just like or Ireland. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know much about it. And now you've asked me to write the Ireland episode as an Iranian male. And guess what? It's going to be pretty bad and ignorant and probably prejudiced and for all these other things, because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and that's what's actually happening in the creative circles every day. Um, and unless you have people that are farmers or from Ireland or from Iran at the top of that creative, you know, uh, pyramid, then you're never going to get the depth that we need. So you really have to take it on yourself in a way. And I think the tea story with the Irish mother would be a little bit different. <laughs> 
I'm not sure how it would end, <laughs> but it would end differently. Ariane, <laughs> Ariane Moyet, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for being with us on Arena. Thank you, Sean. What a joy. Indeed, what a joy, Arian Moya there, a very interesting man. Uh, Arian's latest movie, You Hurt My Feelings, is available now on Prime Video. That is our lot for this Monday evening. Research this evening was by Leah Murphy, Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator, Harry Bookless was in sound, and the programme was produced by Reg Luby. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock once again, here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.